Well, it's our second of five in First and Second Peter, and uh, thus far it breaks out pretty nicely. We get into chapter three a bit, um, but not all the way through uh, chapter three, almost through chapter three. So all of chapter two tonight. Um, the fact that it's not a very long bit of text doesn't save us from Peter being rather full. Uh, I think a lot of people think of Peter as being kind of the shallow, you know, ugly stepchild compared to Paul and Paul's rationality. But Peter's got a load of basic wonderfully basic things, things that are, are, are so big in their basicness, if you want to think of it in that, those terms. We were, we were talking about, in terms of girding up your mind last week, to be sober, uh, pointing it towards the faith that we are supposed to exist in, that, that, we're, um, that the persecution that was going to be coming, this honor of, of being persecuted, was resting uh, obviously, the thing that God was had done was 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 grand, and what you were given was to do is is your trust, your your belief, and so you should be about that because so much rests, you know, on God's view of you. Um, you being, we talked about the uh, uh, the parable of the sower, where the good soil responds with. What's it? Uh, they heard and accepted uh, the word of God, and Peter ends up that text of chapter one, the word, and the word is the good news which was preached to you. So that coming out of this instruction about faith and about God's great gift to you in faith, chapter two begins with so put away all malice and all guile and insincerity, and envy, and all slander. It's an odd list. Um, uh, it's, it's like he's saying, and th th these are obviously consistent with, with that good news you heard. Um, now, it's an odd list in that you don't think necessarily, other than their, their sort of internal all evils of personal malevolence, personal um, bad attitudes about others, malice, guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander, doesn't tell you to knock off murdering people, doesn't tell you to quit stealing. I mean, other parts of the Bible tell you to, you know, let the thief no longer steal. But um, when you're plowing through any community of people who claim, to believe, claim belief, um, you have to regularly hold up the 500-watt Klieg light of what Christianity is all about and shine it into every nook and cranny of their life and say, hold it, is that how you ought to be living? So, I mean, so you should put these away. You hear of, of Christians with, um, you know, whole churches bollocked up by malice for one another. You see ministers who are just, they're, they're patently insincere. Um... They envy. They slander each other. There's not a um, 
we have no shame. Uh, Leslie was talking about at dinner the the commercials for the Bible money code. I mean, have Christians no shame? I mean, uh, supposedly, if you send them money, they will tell you what the secret Bible money code is, uh, which is start a scam, obviously. Um, but the people are tricking out, and and it's a, what's it appealing to? Envy. They want money. People can't stand to have a life in America that isn't, you know, just like the lifestyles of the rich and famous. But for the Christian, those things are, those are naturally consistent to the word of the gospel that you believe that was preached to you. Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. I don't think Peter is saying, you are babes in Christ, but he is creating an illustration of about something is telling a story that he wants you to find what the point of the story is, which is long for the pure spiritual milk so you can grow up. Like a baby, you know, kind of like, so how much do you, it's basically telling you how much do you long for what do you long? Our eyes naturally go to the spiritual milk and wondering, okay, what's on the list there? What's the, what's this deeper walk? What, what are the theologies? What are the rich teachings that I'm supposed to, is it the eschatology? Is it the gifts of the Spirit? Is it, is it the Christian life? What are these topics? I think it's less about that. Obviously, spiritual milk is a good thing. But the thing you know about there, it says, what it's talking about in you is like you were a newborn baby, you should long for this. It's the longing it seems to be about. For you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Whatever the pure spiritual milk is, it has at least to do with the kindness that, that God in the gospel has shown to you. So you've tasted that. So there should be a state of hunger in you for that, a going after that for that, like a baby would cry to be fed. That either in your own time in the Word, or your time in conversation with the saints, or your time gathering from teachers that you have available to you, whatever it is, it, it's a representative of whether or not you tasted, or whether you're just some perverse kid who tasted it and, and just doesn't want to be, oh sure, I should like it, or sure, I should want it, but you know, i got other things to do. He's telling you to long for it. I, I don't suppose we can just consider it automatic. It's an instruction. Like newborn babes, long for this, for you have tasted this. And another instruction in verse 4. Come to him, to the living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious. And like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, it's hard to dodge, just like the spiritual milk, it's, it's, you're just throwing red meat in front of a Bible teacher when you got spiritual house, living stones, holy priesthood, spirit. It's like, oh, I could make up all sorts of stuff. And, um, and they do, you know, they, they start analyzing the temple layout and how you're a spiritual temple for... But like with the spiritual milk, 
those are, you might say, natural hyperbole when, when speaking of a thing this great. It does have meaning, but it actually doesn't give you much of that meaning. But you got these two sides to the same thing. I mean, two sides to the question. Are you going to come to him? Someone who has been rejected. People that reject him, people who come to him. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. So it's telling you to long for this, come to this, for this great circumstance that you should, like you tasted the heavenly gift when you stepped into Christianity, you tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is what that pursuit, that longing, that coming to, will find itself built into. It's not just the taste at the beginning. If you had any idea as a baby, and babies cry for mother's milk, and if someone pushed a jar or a glass of mother's milk across the counter at you now, you'd throw it against the wall. There's just no way you're going to drink that stuff. But when you haven't had nutrition in you ever before, other than by the placenta and the umbilical cord, suddenly you've got this fatty nutrition going into you. It's the best thing since mother's milk. And oddly enough, we get better at eating. We start uh, seeing really good food out there. There's a, I think I told you about when I was in New York a few years ago, Davis took Leslie to uh, Per Se for dinner, and uh, I was moaning audibly. <laughs> I thought it was all pretension going in, but by the time they had their way with me, I, I was a, 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 a complete uh, devotee to whatever they could possibly do to food. Uh, but a baby couldn't, couldn't find those greater things. Because we're not just coming because we, we don't just long because we had a good experience with Christ when we became a Christian. And we should continue being loyal to that team because we got on that team. We're, we're, we're pursuing into him further, we're after him further, because there is a future ahead of you in which, as a living stone, oh, he's the living stone, excuse me, like living stones yourselves built into a spiritual house. You get built into the, the real temple operating at the same time as not just the temple, but with the priesthood, offering sacrifices in that temple. Things that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, from Paul in Romans 12, what is your spiritual sacrifice is you're presenting your bodies holy and acceptable to him. This, this pursuit has a richness in it. Now remember, in the back, in the back of all this is a... Um, is a persecutorial world that Peter is aware that bad things are going to happen to these people have started to happen and so he's he th this is part of a build-up that sometimes when we sit in the comforts of our Western American post-industrial revolution lives and not realize I can sit on the toilet and surf the web you know um, on my phone um, and complain about it, book a flight for the East Coast on my Google glasses, 
Um, I, it's hard for us to sometimes get excited. We're a little jaded by, by images of greatness. We think we can create an absolutely great culture with enough you know, uh, storage space and, uh, uh, and all of the universe open to us to fly around forever and ever. Oh, man. We've lost sight of some of the hyperbole or the greatness or the, 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 the things that we believe uh, fail to register quite, register quite with us like it would register with someone in the first century to be built into the temple. If these people had known the temple in Jerusalem, these things were wonders of the world like the Temple of Artemis, the Herod's Temple, um, Temple of, of, of Zeus at, uh, at, at Olympia. They're all wonders of the world. Uh, people had pegged the meter. It was like going into a iTunes store, or whatever they are, the, the Apple stores, where you feel like you're touching the face of the future. <laughs> and uh, you thought you were being in the presence of the gods. But he's offering you something entirely above and beyond. Behold, I am laying, it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And he who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the, the Septuagint reading. It doesn't quite read that way. In the, if you look up in Isaiah 28, that passage, it, it doesn't quite read, uh, I think it says the servant of the Lord will not be put to haste or anything like that doesn't include the word shame for whatever reason, but the Septuagint does. But we have, we have to consider as Christians that, that not that we have to become uh, nostalgic for stone temples so we could get a picture of this, um, but we have, a, we have a longing, we have a belief, our valuation of, of being something in God. Is, is laid out before him, that, that who Christ is, he's not, I don't have to picture him as a cornerstone chosen and precious that is being the spiritual building block of the temple that I am a stone in. It's a really hard image to, to get any thrill out of. But when, of course, stonemasonry was the biggest and best, it might have been. So I'm not suggesting you come up with a digital version of this um, that you can get excited about. But you have to understand that there is an excitement presumed in the words. Um, that a spiritual house, living stones, holy priesthood, spiritual sacrifices, chosen, precious, and you will not be shamed if you believe. To you, therefore, who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, and the imagery continues out of Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And, verse 8, a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall. Well, it's interesting to suppose or wonder what do we do when a world where stacking stones is not our system of building things. Um, we don't capture the preciousness, we don't capture the tragedy. I think they have a commercial now for something, what if, oh, it was a Geico commercial that the, the pyramids weren't supposed to be that way. 
and the guy's looking at the plans, and there's all these cubes laid out on the desert, and he looks out, and there's the pyramids. And he's really ticked because the engineers built the wrong thing. Plus the cubes. We don't feel any of that other than the comedy value. But it's laying out. You're, 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 you're wanting to plumb this because you got this selection. I'm supposed to long for this. I'm supposed to long for this. I'm supposed to come to this and be warned about rejecting this. There are people who reject it. Those who reject it, those who do not believe, it becomes a point of collapse of their life. The wind that is in Christ, he's become the head of the corner, and two, they, they trip over it. Insult to injury has been added. But to you, it is precious. So what do I do with it? I mean, what do I, I mean, how do I, what do I do with the passage? Other than, I, I think a lot of us slip into, um, we know what to expect Bible words wise when we're reading the Bible. And so you can read to a bunch of 21st century people about cornerstones being laid, and they haven't a clue what a cornerstone is. They don't know what that's about even, let alone people selecting stones and rejecting stones. And the perfect stone that was rejected ends up being the chief stone in the, in the structure. And the people who rejected that stone end up walking away from the job site, trip over it and fall on their face, get a bloody nose. We don't, don't have any sense of that. But the real image, the real thing, it's supposed to help me understand my belief and the direction of my belief is in the preciousness of Christ. And the preciousness of Christ in what he did for his church, what he is doing for us, um, whatever you conceive of temples to mean. They are the dwelling place of gods where the worship of the gods is carried out. And your belief lifts that God up. The ancient religions were always fighting over how their God stood in the current battle of gods. I mean, they were always trying to, our God's better than your God. And this is no different. This is telling you you've got a place to... Um, to lift him up in your mind. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now I bolded those three things because people love that anytime the word destiny shows up. Um, it's not entirely clear that the, the thing that is destined seems to be the stumbling because of their disobedience, which brought about the destiny of them stumbling. Because the promise is, the stone will make men stumble. Their disbelief brought about the stumbling, it brought about the destiny. But you could do it whatever you want with it. Um, but we have to, we would want to say, whatever I'm doing with my life, it would seem that pursuing Christ rooted in his gospel, in his kindness, in his purposes of 
reconciling us to God. That's what temples are for. They're this place for the God to live and man to be reconciled, communicate, worship, that sort of thing, atone for things, give sacrifices. And we are somehow to be on a path that has responded correctly to the good that has been given us. And if not, we'd be in the company of those rejecting it, disobeying the word, and stumbling thereby. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, once again, you're, 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 left, you're obviously given a bunch of things that you should think pretty highly of, but we're not all that, you know, other than Bible time, we're not, okay, I'm Jew, Gentile, Scots-Irish, what are we, uh, Polish, uh, Romanian, uh, priesthoods, we're Protestants for heaven's sake. We're not, you know, the, the, the idea of the priest, um, I think some religions keep those priests around nostalgically, makes them feel like something's really going on. A holy nation, God's own people. Those things are true, and we know what they're about. We're not, we're not clueless about what they ad address, but you're supposed to have this sense of standing that you gained in him. If we come after him, if we come to him, to that living stone, these are elements that it's almost like Peter reached into his bag of descriptors and said, okay, and you're this, and you're this, and you're this, and you're this, like any preacher might who wanted to say, you're, you're like the... There's the Mustang, uh, Co Shelby Cobra Mustang, or something like that. You, you're like the Ferrari of this. You're like the, you know... Back in the days when, when how many megabytes of RAM you had mattered, you know. You're like this. Like he's giving a list of, of great things that were being made in Christ. And I think these are important because they have to do with the memory or the types that have been laid down before. The sacrifices, the temples, the nation of God, God's own people. And he's saying these Gentiles, more than likely, are... Or have been made into this, and they've been made the nation of God, and they've been made the priesthood, and they've been made the race that matters. But it's a, it's a prompting that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we are given all those things, that we are given all those things, and all those things to one degree or another, even if we don't understand them. It's, again, it's not like in heaven they all dress like Bedouins and the technology is backward. Um, but the point is, we are given a great standing in God for all the great things that man can conceive of, even that God's people conceived of by God's direction in the law, a far greater thing than the, the physical. A far greater thing than the physical temple, a far greater thing than the physical priesthood, a far greater thing than Israel physically, a far greater thing. You are the actual. But even that, I, I could lay it aside and say that I may, just, I, I may declare the wonderful deeds. I get a topic. If anything, I want you to stop and go, okay, if I, if I think about coming to Jesus... I, 
instead of rejecting Jesus, if I think about longing for this, what am I longing for? And if I can't really focus on the things that it's describing, there is a way of accepting that and saying, okay, I know what that's about, but I know that its purpose is to take me to the declaration of his deeds very practically, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which is just a serious change. You're given this great standing, this great topic, and this great change. Yeah, this is like one of the phrases I, I refer, when I'm talking about conversion, this is the phrase I use out of First Peter. Called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wonderful deeds. Marvelous light. So somehow I'm supposed to understand from having tasted it, from having experienced it, what um, what I have on my plate topic-wise, what I have encountered um, changes-wise. Verse 10, once you were no people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those things alone, or you, know, you had darkness to light, not people, yes people, not mercy, yes mercy. And just meditating on those things alone, where I, I might not be able to ever wrap my head around a cornerstone. I can wrap my head around darkness and light, his people, not his people. I can wrap my head around not having mercy. Now, with that kind of grand, uh, so, put away this sort of bad behavior, back in verse 1, He then outlines this great pressure that we ought to have internally in belief to long for and pursue um, these wonderful gains in God. Because we have been loved at this degree. Then he says, verse 11, Beloved, I beseech you, as aliens and exiles, whether or not he's talking, remember the exiles of the dispersion is who it's addressed to, so it could be physically aliens and exile, to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. It comes, you, you, you start with this very bald, you know, the word was the good news that was preached to you, so put away malice and bad behavior. And then there's panegyric on the nature of our being called to Christ. I think it's beloved, don't act like a sinner. Don't pursue the passions of the flesh. Maintain a good conduct among the Gentiles, so that in case they speak of you, against you, as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Because on the, on the, when the rubber finally meets the road, it's not how mystical we are, it's not how... Uh, breathless we get when we describe the Christian life. It's not whether tears roll down our cheeks when we speak of Jesus. It's whether or not, as beloved, having recognized the beloved, having longed for those things out of the beloved, having come to those things in the beloved, building a life that has something concrete that unbelievers would only be able to compliment, even if they had accused you falsely before.
whatever it means by glorifying God on the day of visitation. We're not sure. Um, I don't think it was door-to-door evangelism, but, um, but that perhaps on the day of the Lord's appearing, they would be among those who glorified God then because of your testimony and your good deeds. So there's this rubber meets the road. Act like a Christian. It's like the Galatians passage when it says passions of the flesh that wage war on your soul. I have it here in the side of Galatians 5.17 for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. So we know that these are, these are when this admonition is there, there are claimants to the inertia, inertial forces that would drive our lives. One he covered in chapter 1 when he said, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As we know more of him and grow up to this salvation, understanding what has been given us and standing topic and, and, and change, meditating on those things that have been given, I am taking a mind, a girded up mind, a sober mind, and designing my life. I am told to not, to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war on me. I am to watch what the passions demand in, in life so that I don't um, use the passion as my inertial force. That, it, that it's what decides what I'm going to, whether I'm going to do something. I have to have this vision of the Christian life, of being beloved in Christ, that because both of them are going to keep me from doing what I would do. There are, the, my passion is there waging war about the Spirit's motivation. The Spirit is there waging war on my passions. Now the passions, again, are not evil. Passions are, all these things are given by God. It's only whether I did them where I was supposed to. Whether, and the passions are not supposed to be in charge of your life. A girded up mind, a sober mind, a hope fully settled in the grace that is revealed, and not being conformed to the passions. The passions have their place following along after. And then he goes into a great section um, about, and if I, if I walked away from the first two, ten verses of chapter 2, with a sense of the preciousness of Christ and say, I am wiping away the tears off my cheek as I thought of the baby Jesus and I thought of the cross or I thought of all these things that do move us when we think of his wonderful deeds. And I'm thinking of myself as beloved and I want to please him. I want to long for this and I want to... There are some instructions that he gives that are very... Well, I, I like this, this passage, but I've not found many people who do. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now these next, there are three, three sections of authority here in the next, for the end of the uh, 
passage tonight. Uh, civil government, the state, man in the state, citizenry, slaves and masters, wives and husbands. Um, we must understand what the will of the Lord is in these areas because our passions as American, Scots-Irish, difficult people has an entirely different tradition, generally involving cutting the king's head off. Do you understand what the will of God is under governments? For the Lord's sake, verse 15, for it is God's will. For the Lord's sake. You're motivated by that. We trust for the first ten verses. We're motivated by that. We look at our overlords in the civil sense and we go, I'm not motivated to serve the King George III or whoever it was that bugs you. Or the federal government, you know. We do right. We keep God's will. Foolish men are going to make suggestions. It doesn't say what those are. Some of them are going to suggest that that you don't keep the law. Some of them are going to suggest that you ought not keep the law. You want to live, you know, and it doesn't give you a, a guide or a, you know, a bullet-pointed, okay, in this circumstance you can do this, in this circumstance you can do that. It's, you're, you're given moral judgment here. Live as free men, but don't use that freedom. So this judgment call, but you want to ask yourself, what are my judgments based on? Are my judgments like this? Are my judgments, I'm getting a sense about Jesus here in this passage that is about not having myself at odds with people. No malice, no guile, no insincerity, envy or slander. And I'm getting this respectable good citizen routine laid out for me. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What is your judgment informed by? Is it informed by a view of God that knows this is God's will that I do right? Not that I always be looking at what circumstances where I don't have to do what's right. And this is a situation far worse than ours. Yeah, we have a president who pretends to be a Christian. He goes to church and carries a Bible. We've had countless Republicans who pretend to be Christians and go to church and carry a Bible. Uh, they're all pretending. They know it's the religion of choice in this nation, so they pretend. These were pagans. These were crazy people. These were really, really bad to Christians. And if ever the circumstance arose in our modern minds, where I could legitimately disobey the government. They had it far more right out on the surface. Well, they're going to haul your daughter away to burn her as a candle for one of Nero's parties. Now what do you do? I think we get a suggestion from the rest of the teaching on authority here. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing. We have a call that we are, we are brought to. We are brought to 
this tasted the kindness of the Lord, it's not just that we tasted it and longed for it, but that it was kindness. The overbearing. It just, it just had pagan nation, the emperor, and his governors, pagan. Honor the emperor. Oh, and all respect to an overbearing master. For one is approved, hold it, for it is God's will, for the Lord's sake. One is approved if, mindful of God, he endures pain while suffering unjustly. But that's exactly the point where we decide that we're not supposed to suffer. It was unjust, we tell ourselves. It, it, it crossed the line there. Justice was not met. Where's my rifle, honey? I'm going up to the hills to fight off the federales. Um, oh, one is approved of mindful of God. He endures pain while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you take it patiently? Obviously, you should you walk in and confess and take it. You deserve that one. But if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently, you have God's approval. One is approved, mindful of God, taking an unjust... We start, we start thinking, well, what if there were law courts open to slaves if they could make a complaint to the union, the slave union? Um, what, what, if, what if we start thinking of all the what ifs? That even injustice is not a grounds to shift from the call. And the question you want to ask is, first off, okay, we're back with the Caesar. It was, what kind of judgment do I have? Am I, is my judgment going to be marching along with honor the emperor, fearing God? Is my longing for God's approval sufficient to have me take abuse like this when you're a slave, it doesn't say when you're an employee, just when you're a slave, you take the abuse like this patiently. Because that's where God's approval lies, right there. He said, on the other end of that, patient taking, you know, usually picking up guns to fire at them is not taking it patiently. You might want to ask yourself, as this does not even appeal to you, <laughs> you know, say, I don't like this kind of Christianity. You might not have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And it's central, the kindness of the Lord. Right? Verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Dang it! Because he is saying, what you dealt with with Caesar, what you dealt with your overbearing master, is no more than what Christ dealt with on the cross. And he points right at the cross in his suffering. And he says, it was an example. It wasn't just atonement. We were talking about substitutionary atonement last night. And uh, that's one big meaning for it, but it was also there, side topic, example of how to do things. How to take it. That you should follow in his steps, in case you were wondering what kind of example. Example of foolishness, example of Casper Milk Toasty, or no, that you should follow in his steps. This is where the phrase, what would Jesus do, comes from. 
um, back in the days when that bracelet hit. That was in reference to a novel called In His Steps that was published in the 1800s, I think. I don't know the actual publication date, but I think it was back then. About a church that learns to ask itself the question, what would Jesus do? And so the what would Jesus do bracelets that came on a few years ago were all tracking back to a novel in his steps, which is based on this verse, that we should follow in his steps. A little more information that you probably wanted. So the passion of the Christ is what are one of our callings. That we, our longings to be taking that kindness up into ourselves. He committed no sin. I didn't. This was not centered in the original, but it was so poetic. I thought I would break it up and center it. He committed no sin. No guile was found on his lips. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted to him who judges justly. This is what the kindness of the Lord looks like. He committed no sin. They abused him. He did not abuse them back when they hurt him, though he didn't deserve it. He didn't threaten. And he took solace, like we all should, when we are suffering unjustly. We take it patiently, knowing that God's justice will answer, when he tr and he trusted to him who judges justly. But even there, on the cross, he was going, Father, forgive them. It wasn't like, I'm taking this beating for Jesus patiently, knowing he, you're going to get yours someday, you swine. And I'm happy. I'll be there in the cheering sections in heaven as you get your face ripped off by a Balrog. No, because we've tasted the kindness of the Lord. We want to share in his kind of passion. Well, Father, forgive them. If they will not come to him, if they disobey, they are destined to stumble over him. They rejected him. That well, geez, Yeah, too bad. But all of us were rebels against him. We ought to be thankful that it was Father, forgive them, because we're some of the forgiven. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That important a idea is what you're being asked to reach in and pursue into, follow into Christ, long your way into Christ and go, yeah, that rarefied kindness that in Christ himself, because he loved us and died for us in that love, um, brought about our healing. You were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is, it drags you back in this example, saying, you know, I know I just said some tough things, but this is what Christianity is about. Likewise, you wives, because it's back on track with the uh, authority things, be submissive to your husbands. So that some, though they do not obey the word, so you have pagan nations, really unkind masters, and unbelieving husbands. Though they do not obey the word, may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives. 
there's a healing quality in the quiet, compelling nature of people who suffer for righteousness' sake. Oh, you don't always get off it. It's not only at the last minute they all break down in tears. Go, oh, we're sorry we, we fed you to the lions. These things, the bad things continue to happen. But there, there, it is the path that Christ used to heal the world. And without a word, we would naturally, naturally want to go to apologetics. Because apologetics is, well, it's kind of like where we're allowed to fight. I can't poke him in the nose hold a sword to his throat and say, why don't we go get baptized? We don't fight wars about it anymore, but kind of, you know, atheists against Christians in the ring. One enters, two enters, one leaves. We like that contention over stuff. We like that aggression. We're men, we, some of us are men, and we want to contend. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, because we see those contentions. Paul trying to convince the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Those things happen. Those things happen. But our character, we are, we are walking our way further into a Christ that laid this out in his gospel for us, was an example for us, that, you know how Christ was silent at his... I, said, well, I still think to a certain degree it was to make sure he got killed, you know... Um, he wasn't defending himself. This wife, this woman, without a word, but behavior. And if you were limited to, what is it, charades? It was charades, where you have to, the only thing, there was no uh, opportunity, you have a deaf spouse. And there's no paper or pencil, you can't draw any, it's not Pictionary, it's charade. You have to act everything out. Everything you want to go do or have him do or whatever, you got to compel by your behavior. Is our behavior the kind of thing that declares the righteousness of Christ in his kindness on the cross? Likewise, you wives. Don't try to convince your husband by word, but by behavior. When they see your reverent and chaste behavior. The word chaste is hagnos, I have it here, which means pure. And the word reverence is phobos, as in phobia, for fear. No, I don't necessarily think he's, I'm not announcing that. Like, you're supposed to have a phobia for your husband, because the Greek word is phobos. Um, but that's an aspect of your behavior. It describes your behavior. And it would seem like you would want to figure out what it does mean. So that your behavior... Well, we'd rather let our, 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 our behavior slide and become a, come on stronger with our orthodoxy in our verbal arguments for the faith. We'd much rather uh, go buy another book from the Christian supply store to give or lay lying around the house so... You could be always doing something to evangelize your lost husband rather than behave right. And again, have you tasted the kindness of the Lord? Because it, growing up to salvation, back in verse 2, chapter 2, is what we're about. And it's a pretty clear picture. 
Let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair, decoration of gold, and wearing of fine clothing. And again, I never think this is a forbidding of those things. Those are all, those are, none of those are kind of bizarre or, you know, they're just attention to, attention to it. It's, I'm trying to win my husband, says the woman. And somebody who says, well, maybe a, a Pilates class and a, and, um, a new hairstyle. Maybe if you use a different uh, perfume or got a different make makeover at that Macy's or something. Ah, eh, bad advice. Not because it's bad to do, but it's bad advice. But let it be. Let not yours be this, but let it be that. The hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He wants, and the words there for gentle and quiet are words for mild and tranquil. Kind of the obverse of, the reverse of uh, contentious and fretful, which I have a dim view of, uh, because it's, a, it's part of the life of malice, guile, and sincerity, envy, and slander. Contentious and fretting women are are everything a, a home doesn't need to be. And if I'm going to recommend the Christ to this unbelieving master, husband, or or king, my the, my the tranquility of my life and the tranquility and good of my life to them. In all of these cases, I'm serving the emperor, I'm serving my master, I'm serving my husband. All of them are the recipients of service from me. Even when punished unjustly, I take it patiently. Even when I'd like to sound off, I let my reverence for my husband, my chastity for my husband, my mildness, my tranquility in the, in, in the presence of my husband, which God thinks is very valuable, God seems to think the husband will think is very valuable. He will be won by it, it says. doesn't say necessarily, so that some, though they do not obey the word, says in another place in Paul, woman, how do you know you will save your husband? You know, um, it's not a guarantee. But this is the path that God used to save man. And it's what, he entered the world and came down and said, I'm going to get preyed upon by this world. I'm going to be completely innocent. I'm going to be completely guilty in their eyes. I'm going to take every inch of punishment out there. So once, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands. We know that when it talks about mild and um, quiet, mild and tranquil, reverent and chaste. They are all for the husband. It's adornment for the husband. And a husband in many cases, I, I don't know, I, I don't watch this on TV, but I've seen them as I channel surf through. Um, there were some of these real housewife shows. And these, I would call them 40-year-old women, siliconed, tummy-tucked, tanned, bitches. Now on tape. <laughs> Shows my age. Tape? What is tape? <laughs> um, it's like an mp3. 
on a fabric. What? <laughs> Are you crazy? Well, these women are just awful. You, if you were given a loaded handgun in a closed room and no security cameras, you couldn't be trusted. You'd want to kill them all. Because nobody, it doesn't matter how beautiful they are, and they are stunning, some of them. Stunning. Awful people. Adorning, they're not adorning, what is that, one guy committed suicide? His wife was so difficult on the show, and his life was so wrecked by it, he killed himself. Thought he got out pretty cheap. The women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves this way and were submissive to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are now her children, if you do right, and let nothing terrify you. And that's hung out there saying, this is what Christians go after in this specific circumstance. If you're a slave, that's how. If you're a citizen, that's how. If you're a wife with an unbelieving husband, this is how. This is how we taste the kindness of the Lord or long for it. Uh, to growing to grow up in it. I have this pull-out quote. It's the Genesis passage where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. But it's only in the phrase in verse 12 there. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? It's that situation where the Lord says, You laugh. He said, I did not laugh. He says, No, but you did laugh. It's, a, it's all about something else. But she's just referring to her husband on the side. Just my husband. But the word is Adonai. It's Lord. That's what the actual translation would be. After I have grown old and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She just, she just thought of him that way. That was her nomenclature. Peter knows what the use of the word Lord means. It wasn't just, oh, that's just what we call husbands. No, he's, he's bringing that up Submission to the husbands as a place where a woman can become very, very attractive. I was saying about something about Christian couples where there's a difference of theology. I think a man would be very happy to have a wife who differed with him theologically if she were wonderfully adorned this way in every other respect. If his life was tranquil, she revered him, but she disagreed with him. She was a Calvinist and he was an Arminian. You could live with that. You know, what if he got agreement and she turned into this? Um, no, you don't want that. Likewise, you husbands, live considerately with your wives. Now, this is one circumstance. Now, Paul does it in Timothy and other places where he actually talks to the other side of the ledger. It's husbands and wives. And he does slaves and Masters, you know, if you have believing slaves, this is how you should treat them. You know, they, they're both sides of the ledger. But this whole thing has been on how we, in states of ungodliness on the other side, and we're the lower end of the agreement. We're the citizen, not the emperor. We're the slave, not the master. We're the wife, not the husband. But here, when you get into the church, and it's a little bit easier for him to make this appeal to husbands, Live considerately with your wives. It's sort of almost a, you could say, it, since there's a connection between all these people becoming patient and kind and gracious to their overlords, regardless of their behavior. Excuse me. 
the consideration of the overlord and bestowing honor on the um, the person below you, on the woman as the weaker sex. Those are things that obviously make for a better, less malicious, less crisis circumstance if the Christian husbands don't just sit there collecting sandwiches made for them or collecting the reverent chat of the wife, you know, dusting up after him as he picks up his feet walking through the house and she comes behind with a dustpan and then says, yes, my lord, and, and scurries off with a, a, a giggle and a blush. <coughs> the blush that proves she's chased. <coughs> now, we are, we are trying to build something that expresses kindness of the Lord both directions. The kindness of the Lord does not go, oh, yeah, and husbands aren't really in charge. Masters aren't really in charge. Kings aren't really in charge. Because the kindness of the Lord, he doesn't ever go, ah, yeah, I'm not really your master, because kindness wouldn't have me lifted up above you. He says, no, if I am your Lord and master, and I wash your feet, how much more should you? I am your Lord. And so the consideration and the honor, you might say, establish the hierarchical distinction but at the same time, knowing that there is an equitable place for you and your wife when she's a believer. And that is, that you're joint heirs in the grace of life. You bestow honor on, him, on her, in part because you are joint heirs, since you are joint heirs in the grace of life. And if you didn't, for these three things, consideration, which means understanding, it's just the word gnosis for knowledge, um, Honor, which is, is, is rec rec recognizing the dignity of her place, um, the specialness of her place, and the fact that you are shared, you, know, you share in Christianity. If uh, I will have to ask, if I if I were a god, and someone were praying to me who hadn't listened to any prayers of anyone below him, it's like that parable of the guy who doesn't forgive his fellow servant the debt. If you don't listen to the prayers of your wife, if you don't attend to her, to consider her and honor her, why would God listen to you? You don't obviously understand what the benefits, the nobility of authority is. The nobility is to consider and to honor downward. Finally, all of you, we talked about masters, citizens, husbands, wives, all of you have unity of spirit. What in the world does that mean? Unity of spirit. Oneness of spirit. What's the, what we're getting at? It's sort of like the mason stuff. We don't really know much about stones. And we don't really know what we're talking about when we say spirit. Or what, and, and people could then become more disunified about what they're arguing about regarding what we have to have unity about. The ecumenical will say, okay, break down every barrier. Nobody insists on anything that's contrary or difficult for another person to believe so we could be unified. Looks like you're going to have to look at it. Looks like you're going to have to figure it out. But this is some place, these things, unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart and a humble mind. Look at the other 
four things. Sympathy, love, tenderness, humbleness, or humility. Those are all things that are making you sort of accessible. That there's a, there's a, we are one body in Christ. We are members of that same body. We are not just, I'm not just living out the life for Evan Wilson to have so that Evan Wilson, as Evan Wilson, qua Evan Wilson, will be identified in ages to come as the Evan Wilson who thought X and wrote Y, and those things are not, uh, that's me out for Evan Wilson's spirit. The Christian kindness, the thing we have longed for, the thing we came to, produced sympathy in us, tenderness in us, a humility in us, a love for each other in us, I would think the unity of spirit sharing the same, this same purpose. Well, if your spirit has anything to do with our purpose, we are, we are involved with each other. There is, a, there is a goodness and a kindness in the involvement between the Christians. The, that, I mean, it, instead of the malice, guile, insincerity, envy, and slander. This is now unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility. Do not return evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, looking back to Christ's example for us. When reviled, he did not revile in return. We don't return reviling for reviling. It would be really hard if you had the power to do that, especially when they were saying to you at the foot of the cross, why don't you try it? Why don't you call on the angels? I mean, just think of they're dangling that. You've got a, a button in your pocket you could reach that is a thermonuclear warhead you could drop on. You just have to hit it. We usually think where those opportunities are taken away from us. I've been reading, and I don't recommend this, church history. It's a depressing uh, affair. Uh, sometimes you're just amazed at the sanctity of some people. But it's, it's also amazing how this does not define it. <laughs> people returning evil for evil and reviling for reviling and do not, on the contrary, bless. And when you meet someone who's like that in the story, somewhere along that, that just... I was a, I got a big fan of R.C. Chapman. He was Plymouth Brethren back in the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, people, he was a saintly man, and nobody had anything bad to say about him, but people still got up in arms about different issues and were, were trying to confiscate the church building he was using. And he and his elders looked at the documents and found that they had no claim. The other people who were trying to claim the building had no legal claim to it whatsoever. So he gave it to them anyway. Walked away from them. And I read the story in this book, history book this the other day. Um, some guy, some atheist agnostic uh, who somebody ran into in New Guinea 
at some point and many years distant from, he said, you know, he was turned away from Christianity because of the way the Christians behave. Then he said, oh, let me correct that. I did meet one real Christian once. It was R.C. Chapman who used to walk through my neighborhood. You know, and this guy was on the other side of the world by this point, denying Christ and all the rest, but he met one Christian, you know. Uh, but this is where we're called. On the contrary, bless. For to this you have been called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then it gives this blessing out of Psalm 34. I preached on it a few weeks ago at church. He who would love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. It's on topic. Let him turn away from evil and do right. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. Like those that reject, who do not believe, they stumble over Christ, and you see, inside the church, I mean, it's not just the unbelievers who might be against us, or just secular society who doesn't understand what we're about, but inside the church, there are people who do evil, do not pr promote peace and pursue it, do not stay away from guile. Um, God is in favor of the person who sought peace. And if you go back to verse 1 of the evening, so put away, you begin to realize this whole passage is about getting us to be not that sort of person, be this sort of person. And it's, it's anchoring us in our longings, our witnessing of it, our opinion of it, what we saw in the gospel and what we saw in Christ. Those are, and if that means anything to you, if, if there is not this automatic gorge rising against this kind of characteristic, you want to ask, did I have any contact, did the kindness of God ever come across to me? To me. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. And it says, what was that in Luke? Something like Luke? Six. Luke 6. Let me read that passage because I love it. It's just one of those great statements of uh, love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. And we think those are the people we shouldn't have to be kind to, because they're ungrateful and selfish, and they obviously need to be punished. Well, keep your lips from guile, your tongue from evil, and think about what you're longing for and how precious you think the work of Christ is and what topics it's precious in. I think we can get caught up in the doctrines of the atonement about the blood of Christ and forget to remember how precious it is and what basic motivation of virtue took Christ from being alive to being dead <laughs> by his care for us. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Thank you. In your son's name, amen.